Well, it has been quite a while, Josh, since I've done one of these. So you're my first guest uh, since Adam, really, uh, a few months ago. But how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, voice is healed after losing it uh, the last couple of weeks. So that's good news. And it's been nice. I've had sort of like a half week off, which is nice and uh, fully recuperated, ready to go. You doing well? Yeah, I'm, I can't complain much myself either. It's been, uh, you know, it's just a typical Thursday for me. Uh, you know, we're gearing up for some more racing this weekend, obviously. But uh, yeah, can't, can't really complain. It's been it's been pretty good. You know, like I said, it, it's been a little while since I've done one of these. So, you know, I just want to give you a chance, uh, first and foremost, to introduce yourself to viewers who might not be familiar with your work and uh, kind of tell your story, how you got into racing and uh, go from there. How long you got? <laughs> Um, Take as well, much time as you need. All right, then. Let's start at the beginning, then. Um, I'm Joshua Birch. I'm a freelance motorsport journalist as well. Uh, I cover a multitude of series, mainly on my YouTube channel, because I started that a couple of years ago, about 2017. And then during COVID, uh, I was supposed to be traveling to touring car events in Britain. But the COVID hit and everything, and everything got pushed back, and I suddenly had the idea, oh, I'll do watch-alongs. And uh, that way I get to sort of like, I'm not wasting my time, uh, which I never felt like I was, but wasting my time doing the commentaries and doing every session. By doing the watch-longs for all these series, it gives me a bit of a meaning for being in the commentary box week in, week out, across all the practice sessions, qualifying races and that. Like, it just sort of gives me a little bit of a meaning of to what to do. And um, it's, it's starting to take off and um, I get to work uh, as well with loads of people on my own YouTube channel. I get to work with you, Ben, as well on Grid Network and here on your channel and uh, get to work with loads of people, get to meet with loads of different people. And it's just uh, having a lot of fun in motorsports. So I sort of got lucky uh, halfway through as well. I, I always say it's a combination of luck and a, a combination of just wandering in, being in the right place at the right time and just talking with people. It's pretty much how it all works, really. Well, that reminds me of what Bob Jenkins always said. He was just a race fan who got lucky. And I think that's kind of how all of us start out. We're race fans at first when we're growing up. And then uh, this is something that we take on a little bit later in life when we're older and we want to work in the industry and work in the sport. So tell me how you got to be a race fan and then how you decided broadcasting was something you wanted to do. It's a very weird story, actually. So I don't talk about it that often. I always I always drop little bits about it, but because it's so hard to explain fully, I never really talk about it. Basically, um, my dad, who you see on the YouTube streams as well, he uh, was always a motorsport fan, even all the way back since he was born in the 60s. And he used to watch it as well growing up in the 70s and in the 80s as well. He and his brother used to watch it as well and used to record some races as well. So it's always sort of been around. And then when my, my sister was born in 87 and my brother was born in 89, uh, they sort of grew up watching Formula One. In those days on the BBC with Murray Walker and start off with James Hunt and it was um, Journey and Palmer. And it was always all sort of on in the background on a Sunday and there was there's a family video of my granddad's 70th birthday party and um the day after they were all that side of the family were all around at the house with my grandma my granddad as well and in the background you can hear Murray Walker talking and I think it was 
Monaco 93, something other. So you can hear Murray in the background with James and everything. And then there's this wonderful image of them all sort of just gathered around the telly watching, saying, oh, Damon's got it now and he's all that lot. So it's always been around. And then I was, me and Megan were quite the later babies in the family as well, because there's a full 10 years between my brother, me, David, and me. He was born in 89, I was born 99. Uh, and Megan was born in 2005. I mean, mom and dad were in their 40s. Uh, when they had Megan. So when I came along, they thought, oh, right, this is the last one. Um, so I grew up really watching things that mum, dad, David and uh, Kellyanne watched. So it was classical televisions of uh, old soaps, old comedies from BBC and all that lot. And with it as well was Formula One. And it sort of got to about 2000 and they used to really... Apparently, this is what Daddy's saying, and Kellyanne as well, is that I could not go to sleep unless I was watching pit stops of Formula One. Uh, and then it, it got to about 2001, and uh, it comes to Murray's last year. And my dad started recording um, Formula One races for me, the whole seasons as well. So from 2001 onwards, I've got the entire Formula One, every qualifying, every race, and then every, every, since 2009, every practice session, everything. That's what dad does. He records everything for me. And I've sort of joined that with him as well to have my own record of things. So it sort of started as a passion for my dad, really, to tape them for me. And he used to always label them on videos. Joshua's 2001 Grand Prix of Spain or Monaco. So those tapes used to be used for me to sort of go to sleep. It was like a nightlight for me. So I would watch the races. And then as I sort of grew older as well, but... I can remember Murray's last race. I was two and a half at the time. And then we used to have, we got into this house as well, because we used to live down uh, next to a football ground. And then we moved to this house, which is sort of a little bit more closed off area of the street. So it was mainly when I got to here, about 2002, 2003, uh, I started, it was just before school. So Kellyanne and David were at secondary school, which is sort of like uh, junior high for you lot over there. So I was having a lot more time on my own. No Megan at this point. It was like 2000, 2003. Megan was born in 05. So to keep me company during the day, I used to watch old F1 races from the previous couple of seasons. So it was sort of grew up really with watching the races, watching the whole build up. And I sort of got obsessed with Maury Walker because he was the main one I watched. It was always 2001. Yeah, I knew James Allen was there, of course, as well, from 2002, but it always was mainly Murray Walker. And then it sort of got, it sort of embalmed into me, into the DNA, because uh, Kellyanne and David had this F197 game, uh, and on it was Murray Walker. So Kellyanne and, and David as well used to sort of put me between their lap as well and sort of, play the F1 game and I was looking up and watching it and I, you could hear Murray and Martin talking through it. So Murray Walker very quickly for me became sort of a role model and an icon. And I can, I can remember more things about Murray Walker than I can about any other part of my uh, early childhood. So I, I was always obsessed as well about Murray. And every time he used to pop up on the telly, I used to go, Murray, Murray's on the telly. So even though Murray left in 2001, I was very lucky that I was a fan of Murray and I, I knew Murray. So 
that wouldn't have happened without my dad taping them and my sister Kellyanne, bless her, getting up and doing the early morning races and then her waking me up in the night and taking me down and watching the races, dad doing the same. So that's where that sort of came from. But in terms of that's my love for Formula One and racing, you asked also about broadcasting. It got to about 2004 uh, as well. And um, again, Megan wasn't born. And it got to about 2004. My uncle Keith, uh, who's my mum's brother, uh, gave me a microphone um, at a family party. And it is the worst decision he could have ever made, is what everybody always says. Because that entire night, I would not let that microphone go. And apparently, I was just talking Murray Walker lines and commentating on things as well and walking up and down doing grid walks like Martin would. So I've got everybody really to thank for being in broadcasting. But mainly 2004, Australian Grand Prix, it was uh, me and my dad getting up early in the morning, about 4am at that point, going downstairs and watching the race. And I saw, I suddenly thought to myself, oh, I, I could I could do this. And Dad said, well, go on, then do it. Do the do commentary. And so I sort of did a couple of laps. And then that sort of grew from there. And then um, one thing that I've never, ever admitted uh, until now, only, the only people who know about this are people who have been in the family. But... Back late 2004, early 2005, there was a um, Happy Meal uh, with an ornament in it as well. Now, for some reason, it was for the Cinderella movie. So in the Happy Meal, I mistakenly got, at the time, what would have been a girl's toy instead of a boy's toy in the Happy, in the Happy Meal. It was a Cinderella wand. It had a blue handle. In the middle, it was golden with like a thing. And at the top, it was like her, I can't remember the name for it. It was like a, a crown handle thing. So it was like a staff with a crown on the top. But in my brain, all it looked like to me was a cold lip mic that Murray Walker used to use. And I, I must say, bless them as well, because by that time in 2004, uh, my dad had found a video he recorded of a brilliant documentary that is on YouTube as well that ITV made called The Unmistakable Murray Walker. And that uh, documentary was made by ITV in the last year Murray commentated, so 2001. And it showed him throughout the entire year what he got up to and behind the scenes of Murray and sort of told his life story. Quite quickly when we found that, I became obsessed with it. Because to me, at that point, I was getting into broadcasting and it showed the commentary box and it showed Murray. So it had like Australia, Silverstone and America, his last commentary, inside the commentary box. And it, I found it brilliant because I was looking, it was a lit mic, it was Murray talking and it was how he did it. So to me, this children's toy of a wand staff thing wasn't a girl's toy to me it was a it was a commentary mic it was a lip mic and from then on I used to it had a little round handle at the top so I used to put my mic my lip to it and I was commentating off I went so so I've still got that somewhere I'll have to try and see if I can dig it out but um that to me was a microphone and that was that was me I was commentating and then 
I, I, I had this obsession with Formula One and people would buy me magazines and books and all that lot. And I would bring them down like, like, like commentary notes and have all these stats in it. So down they went on the desk. Sundays were all there. And I'd say I didn't do every one, but I did a fair couple uh, as well. And then uh, it sort of skyrocketed from there. So just harmlessly playing, commentating, sort of delivered into a passion. And then Megan was born in 2005. And the main reason for that was because I think by that time they, they noticed that I was having, I was at school, obviously, and I had a friend uh, as well, Joseph. But they noticed when I was at home a lot, I, w- I was on my own because David had gone to college uh, as well, which is like, um, how do I just it? High, end of high school, sophomore year, high school, uh, for those of you in America. And Kellyanne was preparing to leave for university in Nottingham. So mom and dad were looking at the real fact that I would have no other siblings around the house. So they decided it was very risky for them at the time because mum was 42 as well. Dad was 43. They decided they were going to try for one more child. It was very successful. They were very worried that Megan would have Down syndrome. They were was very worried that she might not make it to term. They were very worried about it as well. But thankfully, Megan, as strong as ever, uh, made it through. She was completely unharmed and uh, she was brilliant. And then we got told about that Christmas 2004, that, that Megan would be coming. Uh, and Megan was born April 30th, 2005, uh, a week after the great race in San Marino, where I was commentating. And I'm so glad that she wasn't there for that one, because when Megan was born, I was I couldn't do as many commentaries as I could when Megan was younger, because I used to be commentating, and every single time she would cry and cry and cry. So that stopped her for a couple of years. I did the odd couple. Um, but I really picked it up again, full uh, full throw commentating um, in about 2009. So I did the 2008 end of season with all that lot. But then in 2009, my dad brought me a karaoke machine. Again, the worst thing anybody could do because the neighbours really hated us for that. Uh, so he brought me a karaoke machine and that had a microphone in it. And from 2009 onwards, when the BBC took over, I did every practice, qualifying and race session from then on. So I've been nonstop from 2009 onwards. I've done every single race. I've missed, uh, I'd I've, I've, like to say I've only missed a couple. I missed 2011 Belgium qualifying because it was Kellyanne's wedding. And I missed the 2013 Malaysia Grand Prix live because I was at Wembley for a birthday present. Again, thanks to Kellyanne. And I don't like that because 2013 Malaysia multi-21. I had to go through school, the whole school day in that year, not uh, not trying to find out what happened and commentate on it at the end of the day. Um, started rec- uh, started recording them to a dictaphone in 2015, swapped over from a handheld mic to headsets, which I don't like. I hate using a headset. I'd much rather use a lip mic. Um, and started broadcasting them in uh, for highlights on YouTube in 2017, and then from 2020, did them live. And from 2021, it's been a roller coaster of doing F1, MotoGP, touring cars, Formula E, IndyCar, Le Mans, everything. And that's pretty much how I got to, in the most simple terms, broadcasting. But there's loads of things that I've left out, loads of cool stories. So that's like a quick intro. But there's loads more to talk about as well. There's so much.
I've got to say, I, I love that your dad would uh, record the, I assume you're, you're talking like on a VHS tape, right? You just record yeah. the, the races. You know, that's an era that I miss so much. I feel like I was, I was born about 15 years too late. Cause I would have loved to have been like in, in high school and college and known like how to record on a VHS tape, just what, whatever was airing on television, because I think people know this about me. I'm really big into physical media. You know, I'm not a fan of, not that I don't, I mean, I have pretty much every streaming service there is, and I appreciate the accessibility that those provide, but I think there's real value in saying that you own a copy of whether it's mm-hmm. a, an old broadcast of a sporting event or a TV show or a movie or whatever, because who's to say Netflix can't just take it off without warning. And then the subscription that you're paying for and the movies that you thought you had access to are all gone, you know, tomorrow morning, um, you know, and it, it's kind of crazy to me to think, you know, how as recently as just, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you could pop in a VHS tape to your television, just basically rip whatever was going out over the air. And then you could put that VHS tape on your shelf and said you own a copy of, you know, whatever it was. Um, you know, there's a bunch of old game shows that aired in the late 90s and mid 2000s that, you know, haven't been rebroadcast since. And so it's hard to, you know, it's literally lost media in many respects, because, mm-hmm. you know, they're sitting in the archives of those TV networks, they have access to them. But, you know, people, you know, they, they call them tape traders. And, you know, you have to be on the lookout for episodes which you've never seen before. And, you know, occasionally someone will put a new one on YouTube or something like that. But, you know, I think that's awesome that uh, you, you have all those uh, races there saved uh, from the original broadcasts. And it sounds like, you know, you're really born to do this. You know, you, this is something that uh, I didn't realize that you've been doing this literally since you were, you know, in grade school and, uh, and, and a child and obviously haven't been recording them that long. But, uh, you know, I guess to kind of continue the conversation, like you said, you've got a lot of great stories to tell. Uh, what's your, you know, in, in terms of all the races that you covered and, you know, just leading up to obviously a crazy F1 season last year, what are some of your favorite moments from, you know, commentating on these races and, uh, reacting to them as they were unfolding in real time. Oh, well, that's uh, there's been so many as well, and I've been very fortunate as well because the ones I haven't, I wasn't around for, I, that I couldn't remember, like in 2001, that I had them as you said recorded, and I could see them again. So the first one I always remember, and it always sticks in my head for a dramatic moment, is 2001 Spanish Grand Prix, last lap, Mika Hakkinen. His engine blows and Schumacher goes through to take the victory. I always found that as quite an upsetting moment to me. Um, 2002, Austria, multiple reasons. That's one of my favourite races of all time because um, it was so, so confusing because we had Olivier Panis crash out for, in an unknown circumstance with the engine blowing and locking everything up. Then Heidfeld lost control of the car in the same way and hit Sato. And that's the first time I actually remember. Well, we had Luciano Bertino one, but 2002, I was a lot more aware about Formula One. I'd, I'd watch back Bertie's crash in, in 01, but in 02, that's the first one I actually felt fear for as well, because it was a lot more in close as well. And uh, I watched it live actually as well. I can remember it. Sato getting sidestruck by Heidfeld. To me, it was like, wow, that is dangerous. That is, I feel that might be a bit. He might have been killed as well. I can remember the atmosphere of watching that in the room as well, in the old house actually as well, and all the shock faces on as well. And I'm just looking at it, not moving off the telly as well. And then what happens at the end of the race? Ferrari switch over their places as well. So that's a good race. 2003, um, I'm going in years now because uh, there's so many. Uh, best ones of the year I've got. 2003, um, I can remember Suzuka 
uh, Schumacher winning the title. Me and Dad were watching that. I think Kellyanne was there as well, actually, in the background. I can remember Kellyanne in her pyjamas with a little mug that she had that was like a Bratz girl mug, something or other, that she used to drink out of. And I can remember that as well. I can remember Brazil 2003. Actually, I can maybe remember that as well because I was uh, having a go at... I was in, having say, having a go. I was throwing a tantrum because it was eight o'clock at night. And the race was just getting good, and I was told to I should go to bed. Luckily, I didn't, and I watched the entire thing. And that was a good race, and still remains up there with my top five races of all time. Two thousand four, don't really have a favourite in 04. Um, It's not really a year that I quite remember quite that well. I think Spa kind of tops it up um, because I thought there might be a red flag. I was obsessed with red flags, actually. My grandma brought me this little uh, England flag with a stick and bless her as well. Um, it was one of the last things she ever brought me as well. Um, and I've still got that stick and the flag some, somewhere around. Um, but um, I can remember that race because I thought it was a red flag, but it was only safety cars. I used to wave it as a safety car. So I used to, instead of watching the race, comment on it. Also, I, didn't, I used to wave a flag up and down. And uh, that's another story, actually, we'll go into later about flag waving and what I'm known for down my street, uh, this one. But, um, yeah, so that one's a good one. 2005, um, Megan was obviously San Marino. I still remember Megan's first race um, just after. The race I can mainly remember about 05 was Europe, which was when, in the Nürburgring, Raikkonen's tyre blew. Because as I was commentating on that, um, I shouted, oh, the tyre's gone! Of course, it was very high, high pitch in those days. I never, I didn't have the control I did now. Back then, it was literally just screaming uh, for two, for a couple of hours. And when I said that, Megan woke up, so that wasn't good. She bless her. She she was uh, she was going through a phase then. About um, the United States Fed year, I know that's an all time classic. L five. Yeah, actually, thanks for reminding me about that one. Yeah, the 05 one. I think if you wanted, to, that was another moment actually for me in broadcasting that I still watch back now because I am fascinated by that race. And it still was because that was a race that was Father's Day, 2005, I think. And I remember it for a load of good reasons because early on in the day, my mum and dad, and well, Megan was there obviously because she was a baby, but mum and dad took me to a the local paddling pool. So I remember being in the paddling pool, going around, splashing around with water, but going up to them and says, do we have to go yet? Because isn't, isn't the race on yet? Isn't the race on soon? He says, no, 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 you've got four hours until the race. And I was like, okay. And of course, I didn't know how much time I had then. So I was panicking constantly that we we're going to miss the race. But that 2005 race, um, I can remember being so gripped by the ITV team. I don't know if you've ever seen the ITV broadcast. I haven't, I'll send it to you because it is fantastic. Jim Rosenthal was on the call then. Uh, and he opened the broadcast and he says, right now, I can't tell you if we'll have a race or not. And across the whole hour, it was like a tension buildup. And I was loving it. I was gripped as well. And then the race happened. I was I was uh, sat there with my dad at the point in time, looking and we were talking about how, what's happened? This is crazy. There's only there's six cars. Everyone else isn't there. I was like, this is brilliant. It's not, I wasn't saying, oh, that's a bad race. I was like, this is fantastic. I was going, like, this is drama. I was, I was waiting for the media to get back. So I was very media aware even then about it all as well and um 
I sort of grew up, thankfully, being very knowledgeable about the media. It was, as I said, elder siblings, elder parents. The news was always on. I was very aware about what was going on. I remember the 7-7 bombings as well in London. I remember, comically enough, the British Grand Prix opening as well, which um, uh, was scrapped because it was the Red Hours. They scrapped it. They did a very touching montage as well. And is the race going to go on or not as well? I can remember that in my mind as well because it was just a week later. British Grand Prix after the 770 bombings, and there's loads of things going around pretty much how there was in uh, Indianapolis in 2001 about is the race going to happen? Uh, is it too soon since the bombings? Is it is it too, it should be race, should we not? And there's a lot of things going up about it as well. And um, 2004, actually, as well, um, there was a parade in London. I can remember that as well and loved that on Sky News. Um, I can just, if it wasn't for ITV, and their broadcasting standards and how good they were at making you feel like part of a family and how good the broadcasters were. Murray Walker, I don't think I'd be where I am today. I really don't, because they sort of gave me a passion to do what I do. And dad recording them allowed me to watch all. It just all, all goes there. Um, 2006, I think it's easily said for that race. Um, Brazil, great race. 2007, Fuji. Um, that rate, well, Canada, everyone says, oh, what about Rookie Pizza? Canada was a good race, but no, I remember Fuji because I remember it was the first time as an F1 fan, as an avid F1 fan at that point, um, I didn't know we were back at Fuji uh, as well. So I, my dad told me about Fuji, which I, I found quite weird because it's something I didn't know about. So that was good. And then there was a great race. It was a wet race. Oh, it was fantastic. And that was a, a great one. And um then I could, we're sort of a Hamilton fanboy, yeah, because it was the first British hurt we had in years and the ITV hyped it up and I sort of got swept along with that and think, oh, we could have a, last year of ITV, ITV, we could have a British champion, so that'd be brilliant. But I was cheering on Massa just as much as I was cheering on Hamilton and then Hamilton won in 08 and that was a great race. Silverstone was a great race. 2009 was the first year I was commentating them all, so by that point I was old enough to sort of have have my own independent opinions on things. 2009, um, I liked Australia. Uh, I liked China. I can't remember. And Silverstone was all right, but a bit dull. Uh, Singapore and I was quite good. 2010, I can remember for being the first time I was ever allowed up for the practice sessions during the night. Because in 2009, oh no, too young. Uh, I, was still at, I was still at primary school. Uh, as well, so we weren't allowed to do that. But 2010, uh, moving up to year seven, year eight, so I was older, so I could wake up and watch the practice session during the night and then suffer the consequences of being awake at school all day, uh, which was fun. So I loved that year. I still remember being downstairs. At that point, my brother was still at university, so having the entire downstairs to myself, I can remember Japan 2010, the rain out on the Saturday. I was stood there with my mic waiting to go, and I was like, nothing's happening. It's filler. And um, I was like, okay, that's good. Then get up early on the, on the Sunday, do that one, and that 2010 race. And then 2011, um, that was a good one. I, I love Canada. Uh, 2011 was the year that Megan sort of started to get into commentary. 2012 was the first year she actually did it. Uh, me and her started the partnership of commentators as well. Me, me and Megan always say, brother and sister first, but amazing commentary partners uh, very much second. Uh, we are so in sync now because I've I've sort of taught her everything I know, and she's picked it up brilliantly. And now she's doing her own things as well. So 
that was 2012, 13, 14, 15. I also kicked off on there. Um, I think in the last couple of years, the big moments um, has been everything I've been doing on YouTube. So Grosjean's crash, um, which got us a lot of views for all the wrong reasons. It was a horrible one. I thought, oh God, I'm commentating on a death live on YouTube. This is exactly what Murray did. How do I do it? So I thought, right, bring the volume down and treat it low. And then it was quickly, oh, it's all okay. Um, and that was great. 2021, um, the Hamilton Max season, I think we got incredibly lucky with that. First full year we broadcast and that was amazing. A um, lot of views, a lot of positives. Uh, I mainly love the spa race. Everyone says, oh, what are you talking about? I think, no, as I often said, I said to you, Ben, at the time, that spa race, I found a dream because it was four hours of commentating, but it was four hours of sitting around having a chat to people who love motorsport. I thought it was brilliant. And I love filler. I love red flag periods because it's anything can happen telly. It's literally balls of your feet talking. And I loved it. Um, then that season, that finale in Abu Dhabi, we all knew it was probably going to go down to the last lap. We, we had a post-it note up in the commentary box that we were passing around and making notes on throughout the race saying, this is going to go bad. And we all knew it. And then it did. And then that last lap, um, I think, is one of my best bits of commentary, but also one of my worst. Best bit is that I was just going at it, throwing everything at it. But then after Hamilton couldn't get past Verstappen, I said, and Verstappen leads in Azabaku. And I just mumbled because in my brain, I thought, my, what was going through my brain was they nearly touched. He nearly had a puncture. He could have been out just like in Baku. So instead of Abu Dhabi, Azerbaijan and Baku came out. I was trying to say Abu Dhabi or Yasmarina. So I just dropped it and gave it hell. And I got a lot of comments on that last line I said as well, because I said Hamilton cheated out of an eighth world championship. Max Verstappen, in the craziest way possible, exits the last corner and is the 2021 world champion. And the way I delivered it, I got so many compliments on because they said that was dramatic. It was perfect. It was, it was tension. It was, it was, it was up there with Murray Walker. I've got to start. I've got a lump in my throat. And that meant a lot to me because I, I didn't plan it. I shouted as much as I could. Uh, I just went with the flow and uh, it all, all, all just fit perfectly. So that was, I think, a top broadcasting moment. And then this year, we've already had some crazy races uh, as well as Silverstone was uh, crazy. And last one as well in Austria was okay, but I was losing my voice. So it wasn't perfect. But yeah, that's some of the best races I've ever had uh, as well. And uh, it was a long, long way around, but... Top race for me was one before I was born, 1998 Belgian Grand Prix. For me, is all-time number one. I will never get tired of watching that race, ever. You mentioned something about flag-waving as well. Was that ever, like, being a marshal? Was that something that you wanted to do, or how did... Tell me that, tell me that story. Yeah, actually. Um, I, I, I still do think about doing marshalling as well, because I'm finding a spare weekend to go and do it somewhere. But I often do as well, because... I, as I was very much obsessed because down my street, there, there used to be me uh, and a friend of mine, Amelia, Alex, uh, as well. And uh, Owen was down there as well. But we always used to have races on our bikes as well because uh, we knew each other since we growing up and we weren't in the same school. So we used to have, I lived in the same street. So we used to have races 
as well. And I was always obsessed with, right, we need lights, we need flags, we need all everything and a proper motor race. And one thing I always wanted, not just a lit mic, but was a checkered flag. And a checkered flag as well, you can see behind me, I got them. Uh, but in those days as well, it was quite hard to find them because it was the time before Amazon and all that lot in terms of online shops as they were now. So ordering online was incredibly difficult. Uh, but 2008, which is another reason I love it, um, March uh, 2008, uh, Grimsby Town, which is where I'm from, Grimsby, um, their football team got through to the Johnston, uh, Johnston's Paint Trophy final, the football game. And their colours are black and white. So, and at football games in the UK, there's a chequered flag of the team's colours. So if it was Manchester United, it'd be red uh, squares with white or very light red squares as a chequered. So me and Dad were already going to the game as well, because we, at the time Dad was taking me to football games, just like he had to with everybody else and uh, going through all that. And me and him both knew if we were going down, we probably won't win the football game. It was all about the day in London at Wembley Stadium, but we always knew it was probably our best and only shot to finally get a chequered flag for me. It was all I'd wanted. I'd always wanted one. And it's a story that I'm, I, I, he loves telling and I love telling. We get on the coach from Grimsby, travel around about three hours to the halfway point. And it's a, it's a service station. So we get off the coach. And at that point, we have a burger from McDonald's and all that lot and have a go out. And that, just as we're leaving to get back on the coach, uh, the van that's been following us stops and it opens up and there's all the town merchandise. So dad gets me a hat with spikes on uh, with the Grimsby colours. And just as walking away, what does dad spot? A checkered flag. Not that one. That one's bought for my nana. That one I bought myself. But this very flag here, um, he found. And honestly, that made me the happiest I have ever been. It's one of our best memories we shared together as well. But from all the Formula 1 commentary, it was this, because he brought that for me for a fiver. And the look on my face, I was waving it up and down the car park. I was jumping up and down. It was fantastic. And... We got to Wembley around about an hour before kickoff. We went straight to our seats and there was nobody around us. And where we were, there was a drop-off. So what did I do? I got the flag out. I waved it for an hour, non-stop. And there's dad taking photos of me and everything as well, waving the checkered flag. And I, I always got a bit emotional, actually, because I've got, I know I've got two minutes to go, but I didn't find this out until a couple of years ago. I, I loved it. Dad said on the phone to mom when we were going back, I've got him a checkered flag. And she went, oh, God, how big is it? Is it? It's big. And it is big. And it was on a big stick as well. Um, but that was great. But he has he has a diary. Uh, and it has diary, puts all his dates in for bills and whatnot going out. But he's a very sentimental uh, man, his dad. And he writes big events in the diary. And he, he he's, he's recovering now, as you know. He's, he's not a well man. Um but he had two bouts of cancer. In his diary, when, when he was in hospital uh, for his first cancer treatment, uh, we found his diary for 2008. And in the page on that day, it was, me and Josh went to Wembley, the Jolly Boys outing, which is a thing for only fuzz and horses. And he says, we lost the match, but not the day, my proudest moment, my son and the flag. And I, I obviously was welling up at that point. And 
it gets me now, but that flag means more to me than anything. That is my dad bought me that flag, the first one. The second part of it as well with that flag over there, and uh, that was bought uh, by my nana, who again sadly passed away, but no grandparents left, unfortunately. Um, but she bought me that back in 2013 uh, for the Wembley match uh, with Grimsby Town against Wrexham, I think, at the time. Um, and I went down with Dad, Kellyanne, and Jack, who's uh, Kellyanne's partner. Um, but she bought me that one as well as the second one. I was like, yes, I've got two. I've got two flags. Brilliant. And for a time, I was very much like um, IndyCar, double waving. It was fantastic. Um, but, um, yeah, then... When I decided to do the commentary box in here, I originally just had the two, but it looked a bit ridiculous. And I said, well, I want a third. So it wasn't available. So I had to buy a German flag for the Eiffel Grand Prix. So that had to go up there. And then it actually, it looked nice, actually. I wish we were in Germany all the time because uh, it, it silhouetted quite well. And I did consider having a flag per race, but they cost about six quid and there's 24 races. So I, I decided against it. So a third checkered flag there as well. And then the banner was made uh, for Christmas present this year by a friend of mine. So I bought the third flag. So that's got no historic race thing at the moment, but um, that's been to Wembley and that's been to Wembley as well. So uh, yeah, it's just a nice little flag story. And then I used to do this thing where if I had a red t-shirt, get turned inside out, duct taped onto a stick that's your red flag high-vis vests upside down that's your yellow i actually got a green flag actually from an f1 store so that was there um and yeah i used to, we used to get the ladders out put them at the end of my drive i used to have a racetrack around my street uh as well chalked out grid slots as well and then stand up there waving them then i'd race myself and then all got changed over and then uh did that when megan was little actually as well with uh, her friends down the street and I became race marshal for them. I was red flagging them if they had an accident as well, helping them out, medical team. Um, at that point, I had an electric scooter. So it was very easy that I could just stand at the back if I needed to and just follow them around. So that was a lot of fun. And um, as well with that flag, uh, that dad got me as well, I became known of, I used to hang it out my window whenever he used to go home because he was a taxi driver before uh, his uh, cancer battles. But um so every time you should come home, check it out, go to the flag, dad's back, close the gates, all done now, back home, all family home. So, um, yeah, I just sort of like ran the street in my own head and it was quite funny. And uh, my neighbours, bless them, always used to say, are you going to wave me off then? And there's a, there's a lovely lady down the street who's still, who's still alive, she's called Olga as well. And she always used to buy me a Megan and Terry's chocolate and she still does, bless her, for Christmas as well. Um but she always says, are you going to wave me off then with the flag? And I said, yep, I'll wave you off and off it goes. So I sort of became known as my Formula One passion was sort of growing throughout the street. And uh, it did affect school life very much so. But uh, yeah, it was, it was always fun. So I guess to transition now, um, obviously I know you best from our work together at Grid. And I think actually it's pretty much been almost exactly a year uh, coming up. I think uh, Silverstone yeah. last year was the first time you were on one of our shows. So how did you get to join the grid network team? Did Joe reach out? Did you see us? What was, what's your coming to grid story? Well, it was quite a weird one actually, because it, I didn't expect it uh, to be fair. I, I mean, I had seen grid on YouTube once before as well. And I thought that's a great show as well. And I thought oh, that, that's a, that's a great, great show. 
Uh, and a great, great cast of people, great talent, and great thoughts. I was like, oh, that that'd be brilliant. And I actually think I should try and do something like that. But it all sort of just it nicely fell into place because I got a message after the British Grand Prix uh, from Joe. Oh, just before the British Grand Prix as well. That's what it is. Um, and Joe messaged me through Twitter, and he said, "I, I saw your YouTube channel, uh, and I saw your watch logs. Would you like to come on and be a?" a panel, a guest panelist uh, at the British Grand Prix. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd, I'd love to do that. And so I came on and met you all throughout the show. I don't think you were there actually in my first show. Can't quite remember. I was, yeah, well, I was only on the wrap-up shows back then. Yeah. I was only making occasional, I still am only yeah. making occasional pre-race appearances, but. I saw you, I met you the second day, but yeah. Right. Um, yeah, and I was talking F, I was talking F1 and the W Series race that had happened. So we, I was talking W Series and Formula One as, as a panelist as well. And me and Joe sort of said as well, I said to Joe, how do you want me? How do, how do you want me in the broadcast? Do you want me sat down? Do you want me to stood up? And he said to me, I, he said to me, tell you what, make it look like you've just come off here and you're in the commentary box. So I said, okay, then I'll keep the headset on and I'll keep my glasses on because it was around about half an hour after the end of qualifying so, and, and the W Series. Race. So I thought I'll do that and it looks okay. So first show went well. Uh, I really enjoyed it, obviously, because I'm still here. Uh, and uh, after the British Grand Prix, Joe said, that went well. Do you want to stay on permanently? And I said, yes, absolutely, yes. And I said, I might not be able to do every single one, but I want to be on. And since then, it's skyrocketed, and we've covered so much together as well. And my favourite uh, grid moment, I think, it might be one of yours, I hope it is, in Abu Dhabi last year, that mammoth two and a half hour broadcast where already all our voices are gone. But because it was two and three quarters, actually. It was was really long. Wow. But yeah, because literally it was my fault, by the way, everybody. It was all my fault because we'd we'd done the wrap up. And then just at the end of the Formula One segment, uh, because it was the only thing left, I got a text message saying that it was under investigation and they'd gone into the stewards. So we stayed on. And you guys, I, I I completely threw you in the rabbit hole as well. I felt so bad afterwards, but you guys did an amazing fill. You were talking about anything, everything and everything. And I was literally, as I think you, you saw, because you were Banzis, I was on the phone to every journalist I knew in the paddock. I was on Twitter. My mic bust halfway through, my lead bust. So I had to swap mics. And it was literally just a mammoth show. And that was until all to say, oh yeah, Max is now world champion. They've dropped it. And I thought that was perfect. That I, that was my top moment. And also that was the moment where I said, yeah, I'm staying here permanently. I'm not going anywhere now. And uh, yeah, and I'm loving it. I, I still do. And I love all the shows that we get to do as well. And we've sort of grown this year, haven't we? Because you now do the Encore show. And I love that I get to work with you as well. Even though I call you Joe sometimes because I'm so used to talking to Joe in the show instead of you, Ben. Because usually we don't usually we don't usually say our names unless was the person who's hosting is the name we say to throw back to, so they know in the part of the script when to throw to. So usually Ben talks after me or before me, as well. So it's not often we say our names, so it gets a bit confusing, especially for me who's been talking about nonsense for two or three hours. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm loving the encore show, working with you, Ben, finally as well, and. Uh, everything and um another memory popped back in is when we did the dual broadcast at uh 
uh, Porter, what was it? Not Porter, uh, Portland Port- last year. Portland. Thank you. Yeah, Portland last year. Uh, that was a great one. Uh, having you and Adam in the commentary box was brilliant. Um, but yeah, and it's been a whirlwind, and I, I, I can't wait to keep going actually. And it's bugging me at the moment that I'm not being on as many shows because um, the timing, there's been so much this year because uh, we now do Formula Two, Formula Three as well. So that takes up usually when the Saturday show's on. So fingers crossed that works out soon. But I try and make up for it by, as you say, now I do F2 and F3 commentary, I can be on the Encore show talking with you about F2 and F3. So I can make up the time elsewhere so I'm still involved and I help out whenever I can as well. So it's a lot. I just try and throw myself in as much as I can and as long as I can as well. And the Grid Network let me led me to USRN and... Uh, with Matthew and uh, all that, them guys over there, Matthew, Matt, and Seth, um, did the Daytona 24 hours with them. They did the 500. Um, then I said, um, Matthew said to me, we're only doing a couple of F1 this year. And I said, well, why don't you let me do them all? I'll, I'll do all, all, the, all the ones you've done. I've got the laptop. I've got another bus mix. I'll do them. So he said, yeah. No, no. So I'm now doing USRN as well, the same commentary. And that's blowing up as well. And did tennis me doing tennis. I'd not commentated on anything other than motorsport in seven years before a couple of weeks ago, but I did Wimbledon. I, I did Wimbledon and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and I'm going to get more involved in that as well now, throw, throw myself out of the comfort zone. I really want to try an American football game. Really do, NFL. I think that would be something I could quite enjoy. Uh, I want to try hockey. Um Matthew, if you're listening, not yet. Let me read up on the rules first. My dad will probably be better than that because dad used to be an ice hockey player uh, in his youth. So he could probably do that. But um, yeah, I'm throwing myself in as much as I can and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I'm busier than ever. I'm losing my voice more than ever, but boy, am I having fun. And that's what everyone says to me. I've got a friend, Jade, who says to me, she says, you need to you know, have a break, have a relax once in a while. I says, yeah, but I had Monday off and I got bored. I, I can't live. I I literally eat, sleep, and repeat motorsport constantly. It's too, it, it's too much ingrained into me now. Throughout my school life, Formula One was first, school was second, and I did very well. But it was like I always had my eye on where I needed to be from such a young age, as we said. I always knew what I wanted to be, how I needed to get there, and what I needed to do. COVID threw a wrench in that. So I've done the YouTube side. I love that. And I'm going to be heartbroken when I have to stop the watch-alongs when I eventually get a job doing something along that. I've already thought of backup plans. So instead of the watch-alongs, I'll do vlogs. So I'll still keep the YouTube up because I'm not just going to drop everybody. And if I'm trackside, that means as soon as I've finished everything, I can do the grid network from trackside. And I can do all that. So I thought about what I can do. So I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be busier than ever. And practically, I don't see myself retiring. I know it's stupid to say at 23 years old, oh, you don't need to be thinking about retiring. But I've often said, and I say it as well, they are going to have to carry me out of the commentary box in a body bag. I am not leaving. I never want to retire uh, because I'm too... I can, I can think, I, I never got a chance to speak to Murray and it kills me. But I, I often think that Murray was reluctantly stopping, but he too can, couldn't be kept away from the commentary box. 
I know I'd have to stop at some point, but I'm too competitive. I am, I am, I am that type of person who is too competitive. I, I, I honestly hate it if I'm not there. I, if I'm not commentating, if I miss a race, I, I go berserk. But if anything goes wrong, I stress about it. I like a set routine. Maybe that puts me on some sort of spectrum, I'm not sure, but I like to think of it as a bit of order because I've always done things in a broadcast order as well as I, I, I've got a routine of how I do things and how I do the broadcast. Anything goes wrong, it, it takes a while to fix. And I get, it does get stressful, but I can't imagine sitting down and watching a, a Formula One race. It, it's not me. I did IndyCar for two seasons. I stopped for a year, hated it, so I started doing it again because I couldn't just... The year I stopped IndyCar, I listened to the radios. I had to be involved somehow. I couldn't just watch it as a normal viewer. So now I comment on it and I love it. I would rather be exhausted at the end of the year having done my best to further my career than be doing one, one every couple of weeks and not really doing anything. I'd rather be busy. I'd rather be throwing myself in and doing things. And yeah, it's hard, but I'm quite fortunate at the moment where I'm not even, I'm not in a relationship, but I would like to be in one. But at the same time, I don't want to be in one at the moment because I'm quite busy. So historically, that hasn't worked well. And the friends I've got around me right now, um, they too are busy on weekends because they do karate sports as well. So they're, they're, they're both instructors and competitors. So they're away on weekends, the same as I would be. So my, my friend's balance is sort of exactly in line with work life. So that works well. Um, I've got... Yeah, I'm, I'm going now. I've got Luke, Libby, and Jack, who are in the main group as well, who are busy on the weekends, and I see on the weekdays. And they're always fun, and that relaxes me. I've got Jade, who always talks, and we talk with each other and always help each other as well, and just sort of just zone out in the weekdays as well on the weekends. In fact, she sat in the commentary box as well. I don't know why she did that, but she sat in the commentary box during a touring car race the other week as well. And first, last thing she said to me before she left was like, how on earth do you concentrate? with all the voices going on in your head. Because you've got radios, you've got the TV commentary, you've got the producers talking to you that I've got now uh, helping me out on TeamViewer. And then there's me and the co-coms, so there's so much. But I said, yeah, that's why I'm always busy. That's why I'm so flat out at the end of the week. And that's why I thrive on it. I thrive on the energy. So for me to just sit there watching a race, I find boring. And I'd say it now... I probably will find Formula One boring if I sat there as a viewer because I would much rather be throwing myself into it, reading the timing screens and commentating on it. That's how I enjoy F1 races. I couldn't just sit there as a viewer. I don't, I don't know how people do it. I really don't. And that is because I've grown up doing it. So it's, it's a very weird situation for me. And um, I'm very worried that one day something's going to happen where I'm going to have to miss a race suddenly... I've always thought, oh, I'll break, I'll break my leg or something, and I won't be able to get in the box, or I'll have a cold or something, or and I won't be able to get to the commentary box and all that lot. And um, got close actually. F1 1000, China 2019. Um, I got food poisoning on the Saturday morning, and it was 4 a.m. in the morning doing practice three. Um, thankfully, it wasn't on YouTube in those days. It was on um, edited highlights, but I had to run out the commentary box during practice three because explosive, let me just say, 
uh, in this very comedy show. So I had to run and um, I was like, I can't do this. And I had to make YouTube shows as well. And I got there to qualifying and I went upstairs and I collapsed into bed. And Megan thankfully covered the qualifying session for MotoGP. Because I just couldn't do that. All my energy was on waking up and doing F1. Uh, for the first time in my life, I missed the pre-show for F1. I, I usually like to be in the commentary box watching it or having it on a monitor. Missed it. I got to the commentary box uh, 10 minutes before we went on air. And Megan had set everything up for me. And Dad was in here as well. So he's, they'd set everything up. I was ill. I was... I was almost passing out. I was throwing up. I couldn't do anything. So I, I put the headset on in the commentary box and I thought to myself, okay, let's just do it. So I stood up and I, I did lap one and it got to turn seven and I collapsed into my chair. And literally it wasn't just like I collapsed. I literally, I, I said, action in Canada, good start as well. Got to turn six and I thought, I'm not right here. I'm dizzy. I can't see anything. Head went, everything, um, felt sick. So slouched back into my stool at the time. Uh, that was the commentary chair. And um, I tapped Megan and, and said, just go, can't do it. So Megan took over and then I slowly got back into it. So my my race commentary, you can still hear that on YouTube, actually, on the Grand Review podcast we did back then, uh, China 2019. For the rest of those, Megan did some of the bits and then, I took over and did some of it, but I stood up when I could and sat down when I didn't. So it's the only race where I've had to sit down and then stand up to my bits because I just couldn't. And then later on in the night, I did the MotoGP race. I felt a bit better then, but Megan was with me for that. And literally, there's a selfie we took and I didn't have a wash that day. And I looked greasy. I had um, stubble. Uh, my hair was, a, well, let's, let's see if I can angle it actually, my hair was literally all over the place like that and I looked awful, absolutely awful. I looked like a Simpsons character. So I finished that race in my GP. Megan shut everything off for me and I went to bed and that is the last thing I remember until Wednesday. I, I was in a, I was practically comatose and it was awful. It was honestly, it was the worst I've felt ever. And I, it was some of the worst food poisoning I've ever had. And um, the next race uh, after that, yeah, I was perfectly fine. Everything was back to normal. So I'm very fortunate that when I get ill, it clears up quite quickly. Uh, but yeah, it's sort of like that. But yeah, that's sort of like um, when I've been ill in the commentary box now, I think. Can't remember the question. I sort of got off topic a bit, but that's what. That's all right. That's what this show is all about. Yeah. I'll give you the chance to, to go all over the place. We, we started talking about grid and uh, how you join the team here. I think the first time we were on a show together was after the London EPRI and mm. uh, Ed Hunter was on that show as well. And I've got to tell you, I think a big part of the encore show success actually is, has been you, even though it was supposed to just be uh, me and Brandon at the start, you know, you've really come on and, uh, kind of been our our analyst for formula two formula three and uh you know i appreciate that because here in the states you know i try to watch you know as many of the f2 races as i can on tape delay before we come on uh for the for the encore show and they offer fortunately espn's offering formula three through espn plus now so we can get those races as well um but obviously growing up in the states you know i've much more uh grew up with 
you know, the Xfinity and truck series for NASCAR and ARCA. And even, you know, my, my knowledge in Indy Lights still isn't as great as my knowledge mm -hmm. for the development NASCAR series, but, you know, to have, to have you as uh, somebody to fall back on with, for the F2 and F3 stuff has been absolutely fantastic. So we appreciate the work that you're doing uh, for the Encore show as well. And, uh, and like I said, you know, you, you've played no small role in making that show a success this year. Yeah, that means a lot. And it really does. So thank you. Thank you for that. And you, you and Brandon do such an amazing job with that show as well. Even when I'm not on it as well, I always watch it. I'm interested in it. I always enjoy it as well. And honestly, it is fantastic. Every member of our team on Grid Network is an amazing talent that if I could... I, I've often said is I want to bring you around with every broadcasting I go with because I know you lot and I, I love working with you lot so much and it's always something as well that I've always said as well everybody always thinks oh you should be used to compliments but now I, 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 I'm still feeling comfortable receiving compliments because to me I don't feel like it's it's anything other than that it's just it's, it's something I love doing so it's it's still weird to me it's new to me so I always find it a bit weird but that honestly every single one means so much to me as well and as well, Kobe mentioned something to me earlier as well beforehand. I can't remember what it was. It was it was some point last year as well when we were going through a, a bad patch on the YouTube channel um, on my side of things as well. And he said something quite similar as well. And it lifted, it did lift me as well. And that's lifted me as well now. And it, it honestly gives me motivation to do things as well because I work with everybody here. But sometimes, as I'm sure you get as well, you get to the end of the weekend and you think, why am I doing this? I guess I get it. I do get that every now and then. You, you sort of go, Why am I doing that? Why am I standing in the in here doing this? And that's usually when my voice is gone, I'm, I'm tired and I haven't slept for a while and it's all getting up. Or um, I battle with insomnia quite a bit as well. And um, that's a medical condition that still can't be fixed uh, for me at the moment. So every now and then, usually in the summers as well, it's like I have a condition where. I don't remember sleeping. You know, like everybody's got a vague re recollection. They've slept, they feel refreshed. I don't. I literally have a condition where sometimes I blink and it's the next morning and I wake up with a big headache and, it, and I have to go just get on with it as well. So um, everybody said, that's probably why I can do Le Mans so well because I, I, I'm just used to it now. But I blink and it's the next morning. It's like, oh, great, here we go. So... Um, it's it stays like that when I get really tired, so it does build me up. And it, so thank you for that. It does help, um, and it, it feels weird still hearing everybody. And um, it, one of my YouTube commenters as well said as well that um, I'm, I'm one of the best commentators they've ever seen, and I'm, I'm always their commentator across the series they watch. I've, I find that weird as well. I, YouTube's this amazing power where. It's as, as, as the channel says, it's alternate voices for, for commentary and for racing. And I'm, I'm so immensely grateful for everybody who tunes in and listens to me rambling on about motorsport. I, I find it amazing. And I'm not one of these people who love the sound of their own voice because sometimes I think, oh, that's not great. I mean, my, I remember my friend voice chat my, on Snapchat. I listen to it back and think, a bit too high doesn't sound too right but what people say as well they always compare me oh you sound just like murray walker i think that's such a compliment and there can never be another murray walker but it's such a compliment for them to say that and it's and the style that they enjoy my style of commentating as well which is i always say i try and put my own thing on it but everybody 
I found it's an amalgamation of everyone. I've got there's there's Murray with the it's incredible dramatic stuff drama. There's James Allen with the casual conversation. There's there's Martin Brundle thrown in there. There's even a bit of Jonathan Ledyard in there from BBC days. And Jonathan, bless him, wasn't a great commentator regarded by the fans as one, but I thought it was great because no one could introduce a race like Jonathan Ledyard. The words that would come out as well, it was beautiful uh, as well. So I really love Jonathan's commentary. And to that on board, Martin Brundle, him too. I got some commentary from him. Ben Edwards as well. I've got some from Crofty, but admittedly, Crofty and me styles are too similar, so they clash a little bit. But um, I've got some from him. Alex Jakes as well. I take him, I listen to him and take his impressions. Um, Bob Varsha, a big inspiration for me in the present couple as well. Bob Varsha's taught me to tone it down and to talk about what matters. And Bob does this amazing thing where he says so much with so little. So that's what I love. And Alan Beswick as well. He taught me how to do IndyCar uh, as long as I'm Bob. So Alan Beswick's commentaries on IndyCar, I try and do that. And even a bit with Lee Diffie, yeah. I'll try and take on him at his as well and try and uh, rise him up as well. And um, comically, um, he, he was actually behind what I've taken for my IndyCar starts, because I used to say, oh, Ronda Wayne, because IndyCar's a rolling start. There's nothing I can say for a rolling start. So he, I heard him once say, green flag in the air. I thought to myself, oh, hello. I could combine something here. So at the moment, I've gone for a bit of Crofty and a bit of Lee. So it's green flag, away we go, or green flag, race on. So it's something I can say when the green flag falls, like I say, because in Formula One, uh, I developed back in 2013, um, I knew I need, I wanted something like Murray. Murray had his go, go, go and all that lot. So I wanted something like Murray. And uh, my English teacher at the time, um, Sam Franklin, who was a wonderful teacher. She was amazing as well. And she truly was trained in media. So it was like I got a golden teacher here as well. So um, we just done an English lesson 2013 before the season started on alliteration and powers of things like A and A. And I thought to myself, it suddenly came to me as well. What a great opener for a race. Action. When the lights run out. I thought that's brilliant. That's so simple and to the point. So I thought to myself, action in Australia. That's the first race. And she said to me when I told her about it, that's perfect. That right there is your saying. That is a perfect saying. So I tried it in Australia. I went, action in Australia. And I thought, oh, that worked. That went well. So I tried it again in Malaysia. Thought mm, I could do a little bit of work, but then it sort of fastly grew that I can't say a race start without it now in Formula One. So it's it's grown. Tried to get out of that recently with the sprint races. I've started saying like lights out or things like that, and just trying to change it up a bit. But I I've I decided very quickly I needed to say something different and something my own and something as well because when I say it now, when the lights go out, I would say say we we're in Austria last week, so I would say three lights, four lights, or all five lights are on, or five red lights, or all five lights, or something, try and drag it on. And when they go out, I'll say, action in Austria as well. And depending on what the situation is and the mood is, I'll change it. So if it's a very fast start as well, there's a lot of tension in the air, I'd go, action in Australia. Or if it's kind of like a quiet weekend and we're sort of drifting into it, I'd go, action in Austria, and sort of build up to it as well. 
And Ben Edwards taught me that as well. So just leveling out the pitch on things. Um, and saying that gives me a vital couple of seconds to see because I always look at the lights that are on. And then as soon as they go out, my brain goes right, action. So I look down. So my brain's on like an automatic procedure. So the lights go out, I look down, I start talking, but it gives me a couple of seconds to read who's ahead. So I get a couple of seconds to make my decision. So easily go, action in Austria, great, great start from Leclerc, comes across, defends for Verstappen, something like that. And it works quite well. And whoever's in the box with me, we have a system. So if it's Megan, I look at the front and keep an eye there, and Megan looks at the back. So Megan's always keeping an eye on row five onwards to see what happens. That came in handy in Silverstone when Joe crashed. She spotted it, I didn't. First time I saw it was Joe upside down in towards the barrier. So Megan was easier to talk to on that. So it works and the styles work and um, it's just finding what works for yourself and finding the group of things as well. And you've got to commentate with the right people. You've got to work with the right people. You've got to make sure that you leave your ego out of everything. And one thing I always work by as well is the fact is that Never disagree with anybody's points. Always find a counter to it as well. Like, um, don't just say, like, Ben, if you were to say, well, I think um, Hamilton's going to win this title, I wouldn't come back and say, Ben, you're being ridiculous. I would come back with saying, actually, could do it. There's still a lot of points left on the board. Ferrari and Red Bull having problems. So you have a conversation as well. You don't immediately go into insults. And that's what you got. That's what I like doing as well. I like talking motorsport. And mainly that's why it goes on so long. Like already we've been talking for so long in the podcast because you just start talking and you just don't stop. And people have always told me, told me as well that I could and probably will outlive God having la the last word. And I probably will. And I'm looking forward to it. Bring it on. You know, it's, it's great that you bring up uh, Varsha and Diffie here because, you know, I, as much as I've enjoyed uh, the, the deal that ESPN have right now is, is fantastic and just simulcasting the sky feed. I think, you know, a lot of fans that, especially the ones that got into before the drive to survive, you know, Netflix era, if you will, you know, to have our own commentary team and obviously David Hobbs and Steve Matchett were a big part of that as well as Will Buxton, um, you know, from speed and then they transitioned to NBC, but, you know, Bob, Bob and Lee both had, uh, you know, their unique styles, but they both, I think added a layer uh, to, to the broadcasts that, you know, it's, it's been missing from the last several years here. And Bob even, you know, kind of moved over to NBC. He's been doing some freelance work, you know, all over the place, but he, you know, there would be a couple of races where Lee would do like the IndyCar finale. So they need somebody to fill in if there was a conflict there. Um, but, you know, I, I think, uh, I think Bob Barsh's was, uh, you know, here come the lights, turn up the volume. And I remember, uh, Lee Dippy's famous line was, uh, time to bring the action. So that might be an, another place where that action line comes in. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's going to be interesting, you know, these new TV deals, it looks like ESPN is re-upping and, uh, they seem to have a very successful partnership now. So I don't know, uh, you know, I guess we, we do have Nicole Briscoe who kind of brings us in and out of, uh, you know, the broadcasts and everything, but, you know, aside from that, it's really just the sky team. So, uh, you know, that, that is something I miss, uh, you know, as, as great as David Croft is, and uh, the, everybody at Sky Sports, um, you know, that is an era that I grew up with when I was just starting to get into it that, you know, is missing now. I'm going to say something quite controversial here. I don't think the Sky team should be 
entirely British, like it is at some races. We they, they go out in Australia, they go out in America. They are the main channel in America. I personally would love to see at a permanent American member of the Sky team. I'd love it because they've got Danica there at some races, but not enough. And what Danica brings as well, I know everybody's got their own opinions on Danica and usually in the IndyCar NASCAR, it's like, oh, well, we're, we're, we're a bit fed up of hearing from her. But she's completely different in the F1 side as well. She brings with her a knowledge and a questioning about it as well. She's sort of like the GOAT. The, America and Formula One have had a very harsh relationship, and it's now finally getting good. It's finally getting to where it needs to be. Three races over there, record television deals over there as well. But we need an American on the team. There needs to be someone there who can as act as a gateway for the fans. And I think Danica does it beautifully. She, she hasn't raced in Formula 1, no, but she's raced in an American series, both of them, IndyCar and NASCAR. And she's perfect because she can come in and she can ask the right questions that every British fan will know, yes, but not every American fan will know. She's exactly what we need. And who's to stop it with Danica? We, we can bring in so many. We've had, why can't we bring back Roman Grosjean for, any, for a race as a pundit? I think that'd be brilliant, bring in some IndyCar drivers. Get Americans in. Where is Mario? Why isn't he coming in for a guest in? He was in Miami in the commentary box for like a session and disappeared. Get them in. Get famous faces in who know Formula 1 and can question it and get it on. And that would be booming. And I think it's a missing trick. And as, as I mainly said as well, I, I do love Crofty's commentary. I love it. To, I love it uh, to pieces as well. But it's getting to the point now where it sort of needs to be more gates opened for people. I like what F1 TV are doing at the moment uh, because they've got three commentators on rotation. They've got Ben Edwards, Will Buxton, and a friend of mine, Tom Gaymore as well, who's a very big commentator around the world as well. But um, he's been very kind to me, helping me in my career as Tom Gaymore. Um, and that is a perfect rotation because it's differently commentators alongside different co-commentators. And I think that's something that could work on Sky and it could bring in the likes of Bob Varsha, could bring in the likes of Lee Diffie, get them opportunity to go in. And that, I saw a brilliant tweet from you uh, a couple of days ago about uh, bringing Lee Diffie into a different commentary as well before he retires. And I thought, yeah, that's perfect. Why can't we have that? Why can't we have a, a one race where we have different commentators, even if it's a sprint race. I don't think Crofty or Martin will care about missing a sprint race. Just give them the chance and give the American audience something different. And We've got practice sessions. Give us a drivers-only practice session. Give us things that we could have differently. But there's so much to do there, and there's so much that can be done, and I'd love to do more on my side. I'd love it. I'd love um, on the American races to do. I'd love to have everybody on Grid Network on. I'd love to have... Uh, racing drivers on. I'd love for everything as well, and I'd give anything to do it. It'd be brilliant. It's a lot of fun, and that's what people need to remember. They need to stop treating Formula One broadcasting as like, oh, this is a job, we've got to be serious. They need to start treating it as fun, and that is where you'll get the enjoyment from it as well. And one thing that I always try and do is welcome the viewers in. Like, you're watching the race with us, you're not watching me. That's what I always try and do. Yes, it's a watch-along, but 
the only reason that we have the camera on full screen on lap one is because the driver tracker doesn't work on lap one. As soon as that driver tracker's on, we're in a little box. You've got a driver tracker. You've got timing screens. You've got battle screens. You've got team radio. It's not about us. We are watching the race with you. We're providing the commentary, and you're watching the race with us. Get involved. Give us messages. We'll read them out. Nobody is excluded. I think that's what Sky's missing. It feels too closed off. Like we're watching them, we're not watching with them. That's what needs to change. More Twitter, more socials, more things like that, more content, and don't geoblock it. Get it out there. Get it across the world. We love Formula One. You love Formula One. We all love it. Let's get working together. And that is what needs to change at Sky. And I think if that happened, America, it would be broken for F1. It would be the number one sport in America over NASCAR, over IndyCar. It would be brilliant. Well, Josh, I guess just to wrap it up, I think you've already alluded to this a little bit uh, earlier in the show, but, you know, we've been talking about the commentary teams just now. Um, You know, what, what's kind of your end goal? Like, do you want to, you know, be something, you know, do something like what David Croft does, like where you're commentating on F1, you know, all around the world. Do you what would you rather be like in a Ted Kravitz kind of role where you're in the pit lane? What do you want to ultimately do with this? I'm I'm a bit selfish. I want I, I kind of want to do them all. Ultimately, of course, I want to I want Crofty's job. That's what I want. I want to be leading the commentary team with an amazing panel of guest commentators and co-commentators and everything. I want to be leading that panel talking about motorsport and talking about formula one. That's what I, that's what I've always wanted. That's not what I definitely want, but I don't want to be selfish in that role because I don't want to be always stuck in the commentary box. That's not something that appeals to me. Strangely, strangely enough, I don't want to be in there for every single session. I want to be in there for qualifying in the race. That's, that's for certain because they're the big bits and I want to be in there for every single race. Nothing will drag me out there, but I kind of want to be selfish. Annoyingly, I've been thinking about it a lot recently, actually. And ideally, I, I don't want to just be like going there saying like, all right, I'm here now. I'll be in the box. Everyone else, stick to your roles. I'm not like that. I love giving other people go at the mic. So you know, like how we got Natalie Pinkham and Rachel Books, they've been on the, on the practice sessions in the commentary box. I've been thinking to myself, well, Crofty doesn't do anything in those sessions. So I thought, well, I'd, I'd, I'd go out the track. That's what I would do because I don't want to be stuck in the commentary box, traveling the world, looking at a computer screen, not being able to see the cars in the flesh. I want to be able to see them, get up close with them. So I thought for a practice session, I I don't mind missing it. I'd go out the track. My fear is missing out on the broadcast, not on the session in the commentary box. So I'd go out on the track and do what Martin does, take a look at the cars and report back and give my thoughts on what's happening out on the circuit. So I'd go do that for a session. Then I'll probably head back up to into the box of practice two. And then practice three, someone else take over in the comms box. And I'll go down to the pits. I'll do what Ted does. Or I'll rotate it every now and then. And I'll go down to the pits for a practice session. And I'll go and walk up and down, do some interviews and talk to people and do and do Ted's role. And then qualifying the race, I'll stay in the commentary box. Don't mind that because that's where I want to be for the big sessions. But I don't want to be always stuck in the commentary box. That's That doesn't appeal to me. I want to be out there seeing the cars on the track, 
and I'm going to talk about the racing. Practice sessions, I can always give and take. Qualifying the race, I can't. I'm obsessed with those. So I, it's sort of everything. I'll do everything. I'll host the show if they want me to. I'll be busy, but I'd host the show. I'd do, I'd do whatever. I'd, I'd host the F1 show. I'd host everything. I'll do Ted's role. I'll do the Skypad. I'll do the commentary role. I'll do anything they want me to. Even the grid pen interviews. I'll leave the commentary box and go to the interviews. I would love to do it. And I, I'm sort of like a team player, as, as I don't like being selfish. Only when it's the race, when literally I, I give devil eyes to Megan or dad. If dad isn't, it happened in Silverstone, this first start, dad was talking when the light, when they were on the grid, the lights were coming on. So I was sort of tapping him and going like that to him. And I go, and people can see it because I go like this, give him dead eyes and go, stop. And when I go like that, they know that's it. I need to start talking. Um, but I would love it. I want to be in the pit lane for a session. I want to be in the track side. I want to be everywhere. So I don't just want to be in the comedy books. That, that doesn't appeal to me because I'm in love with Formula One. I'm not in, just in love with the commentary box. Although it's, it's like a second love. Speaking of it being in the commentary box, um, you know, I, I just remember you wanted to talk about uh, something uh, about one of your first experiences of a track. Have you gotten the chance to commentate at the track before? And what's that experience been like? I have. Um, thank for, I've been to a couple of racetracks as well. Uh, but I've only ever been to one F1 uh, track event because thanks to COVID. Um, uh, 2019 testing uh, in Barcelona. Um, got in big trouble for that. A huge trouble. Um, literally, uh, we were live on Facebook uh, as well. Not in the paddock, but sort of on the balcony, looking into the paddock. And you're not allowed to film the paddock. And we don't have the right pass, but we weren't in that part of the paddock. So we got told off uh, live on air, and that was a bit embarrassing. And it did actually deeply affect me. I'll get onto that in a second. But um, yeah, first day there, flew me and two uni friends. It should have been three, but she couldn't make it. Uh, Dane and Connor flew them. Well, I, I flew them, and they paid me back later, but flew them to Barcelona to do F1 pre-season testing because it was the perfect time, really, because test one was shown live, but test two wasn't. So my great, great idea, go and do testing. Think of all the views. Think of all the publicity and how far I could get it. So I flew over to Barcelona. Thousand quid cost me for everything. Eight days. So because it was four days of testing, but the flights had to be there for eight days. Middle of a heat wave in Spain in the February. I went there in a winter jacket. I was baking. Unbelievable. Um, so first day at the track, uh, it was short sleeve shirt and, sh and shorts. And we'd just finished the morning show from Facebook and then it got put on YouTube later. Um, so we just finished the morning show, first hour live broadcasting from the track. And it was in the main grandstand watching everything as well. At the end of it, I, I looked up and thought, the commentary boxes are just there. If we took that lift just along there, we'd get up to the commentary boxes. So we went to the commentary boxes lift was easy up we went top fifth floor of the Barcelona grandstand and behold there is the commentary box and um looked down to this pit straight looked fantastic standing in a commentary box my legs were jiggling and everything I was like yes let's just stay here uh and I thought eventually it's like now we've got we've got to go we've got to look at the tracks and everything we had other things to do because we had a paddock pass that day so we had to go to the paddock and, and talk with people and everything so we came down 
uh, went in the lift, only to find that the lift wouldn't actually go down. So we were stuck on the comedy boxes, to which it's always my great uh, joy of saying I've spent my entire life trying to get to the commentary boxes and I got trapped there on my first attempt. So we went down the stairs only to find that the gates were locked on the commentary box level, padlocked and chained shut. And we're there with a microphone, a camera and a rucksack each full of equipment to which we the only way down, and it's a five-story drop, there was a gap uh, between the commentary boxes where you could jump down to the next level. But it was a short gap, but you had to dangle with, like Lara Croft, hands at the top of the bar and legs dangling and just sort of fall and hope you land on the railing. Otherwise, you go straight to the gap and hit the floor. Dead as a dodo. Dane manages it, Connor manages it, and then I'm last. And Dane says, you're not going to make it. I was like, oh, thanks for that support. Mike goes down, um, equipment goes down, and I just dangle. And I've never known my body had that much strength in my life. And literally, I fall, and I make it. And I had to literally climb my way out of the commentary box. I always compare it to when Martin Bud and Roy Walker in 1997 in Silverstone got locked in at the track. They had to bury a fireman's uh, ladder to get out the track. So they were literally just dangling over the side. So that's my first commentary box uh, story that I always love telling. And then the end of that trip ends up perfectly because on the last day there, I met Ted Kravitz coming out of the media centre. So I got to talk with Ted for about 10 minutes, and that was a lot of fun. Um, Fernando Alonso recognised me that weekend because we bumped into each other at Silverstone uh, the year before in 2018 when I was covering a World Endurance event there and he walked past me and we sort of bumped into each other uh, and I couldn't I couldn't do because he was on the way to get in the car so I couldn't just stop him for a chat so he sort of smiled at me and then I'm holding the same equipment wearing the same jacket and the same shirt in Barcelona about six months later he's there as a test driver that year and we're walking down to each other opposite directions in the pa- in the paddock and he looks at me and he goes, it's you. I said, yeah, it's me. He says, oh, ah, ah, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just doing this. And he's like, just uh, give, uh, give me a wave. And he says, and a smile. So Megan always enjoys hearing that because Alonso's her favourite driver and I've actually had the pleasure of speaking to him. So uh, Megan always gets annoyed at that. But yeah, that was a great one. And I try and remember the positives of that trip because, as I said earlier, there was a lot of negatives. Uh, first, end of the first day, we got in trouble uh, for, for broadcasting we weren't broadcasting in that area but we got in trouble for it and literally a bollocking from the head of the f1 media department a short little bloke as well and i left it on good terms with him because i don't like being angry with people like that so shook his hand and had a great joke and a laugh and everything he gave me some great tips as well about how to do in the broadcasting everything and i thought everyone else around me said that went perfectly well that, that was fine there was nothing wrong with that but it got to me. It really got to me. I left the circuit straight away. I, I was feeling awful. I got into depression uh, overnight and it was awful. Second day there, did the shows. But as soon as that camera was off, I was back in a depression. I was, it was awful. I was, I was emotional. I wasn't talking. I was, I was nothing. Um, 
we were walking on the track that day because we weren't in the paddock that day. I was good because I didn't want to see that guy. Nothing wrong was wrong, but I just didn't want to see him. So we went in the paddock that day. Um, so we were out on the track. And I always remember we were walking around and we got to turn four at the end of the day. So eight hours outside in the sun, end of the day, I got an email from my tutor who said, now that you're not broadcasting tomorrow, I don't see why you've gone to miss term time. And that got to me. And my, my friend, Blessing Dane, replied and said, look, he's not in a good state. Do not message him, things like this as well. And we ended up broadcasting the rest of the week anyway, so that was all right. But that end of that second day was one of those times, as I said, where I felt to myself, I don't want to do this anymore. To which point we were walking back from turn four. And you know Barcelona, turn four. Walking back, and all I could hear in my head, it was so weird. All I could hear was the commentary of races from there and one of the things I'd said over the years. And it was like I was in a TV show in a flashback. It was so weird. I wasn't making myself do this. It was just rushing through my head. I was so emotional. I was so tired and drained and everything. And um, I was li we literally just um, turned turn four. So Hamilton Rosberg's crash. And I stood there as well. And I, I, at turn four, I was crying. I was, I was, I, I, I stopped. Dane and Connor were walking further up, but I was stood there and I was, I was crying just silently. And I sat down on the bench and I rang, I rang mum and dad who were at home and everything. I said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. At this point, I was in floods of tears. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I feel nothing. And at that point, I honestly said, I don't want to do Formula One anymore. I, I, it's too hard to get into. It's too, it's too cruel. It's too mean. I can't do it. And I said to them, and, said, and dad said, well, what do you want to do? Then? Do you want to do MotoGP? Do you want to do joint cast? I said, that looks easier. That looks more fun. I, I, I don't know. I'd end up doing that. And I got off the end of the phone and then I left the circuit. And every time I was leaving the circuit, going around, was images of commentary and everything. Like I'd wasted my life trying to get to this point because honestly, that one guy, he didn't mean anything by it, but he had completely messed me up. And they it's true they call it the piranha club and i experienced it firsthand because i was emotional wreck and then i got a phone call from my brother david at the end of that day and he said okay look don't do facebook anymore do youtube and i said yeah well okay but then i was like i've got these shows to do and it's like i want to do something else now and i was like i don't really feel like doing anything in vision he says well why don't you do a podcast and i thought well that's a good idea but it's like what do I do? What do I record it on? I was like, well, you're there at the track. Do a, do a podcast on it and do a review of it. I thought, okay, that's a good idea. So start, sat in the grandstand. We finished all the shows. So sat in the grandstand at the end of day four and recorded a podcast. I had no script for it. I just recorded it. And it, words flew out. Everything I'd interviewed in the last few days, I decided in my head that I'd throw it out there. I'd interview all the interviews I got from the, uh, Facebook streams, I'd edit up and put them in the review and put it as a podcast. And I've still got that podcast. It's on this laptop now. It's never, ever been released. It's never even been fully finished. It was more like a pilot uh, to be there. But I keep it there to remind me that I'm stronger than that. That made me stronger. And that made me understand more about broadcasting. That made me understand more about how everything should be friendly with each other. Yes, it's a piranha club, but it's not like that. It doesn't have to be. You can be friendly, you can be kind. 
and don't let them get into you. Don't let them grind you down. And um, my brother came up with the title, The Grand Review. And I tried to, I, we've lost it at the moment, but I want to bring it back some way. But The Grand Review, perfect podcast, edit everything down. So I did that for a year and a half. Then I did live streams. And that's the thing. The family brought me back up like they had done from the very beginning. They got me back into Formula One when I was at my lowest. And uh, that I owe them everything. And then everything sort of took off from there. So that one bad incident from in Barcelona threw me on the YouTube channel. And that led me to Grid Network, meeting all you lot. It led me to USON. It led me to being headhunted for an eSport league, BBB Sports, that folded. But that then led me to working with PSGL, who's one of the top tier eSports for Formula One. That's led me to commentating on other other leagues now as well. It's led me to do more work than ever that I'm loving. And that's what, a sort of perfect end, isn't it? But that story as well. I went to Barcelona in the deep end, left miserable, came, but came out of it. And look where, look where, how much I've got. And I always try, don't try and say I've worked myself for it, but I'm happy the way it all turned out. That's why I say right place, right time to get into everything. And um, I look back on that trip now with a lot of fondness and a lot of good memories. And um, I, don't, I, I don't feel anything back from that one bad encounter because I try and remember the good. Ted Kravitz, Fernando Alonso, um, Jack Aitken was there as well. Uh, running up and down in the paddock as well, feeling like I belonged there. And then feel like I didn't, then feel like I did, like I nerfed myself in. So it's it's kind of like that. So I always remember if I didn't have that one breakdown in Barcelona, I wouldn't be where I am now and I wouldn't be doing what I am. And it's all because of the family, because of the help, and then right place, right time, working with everybody here. So that's something I, I've, I've talked about a little bit, but I've never gone in detail as that before as to how bad it got that I honestly, honestly at one point considered never even watching another Formula One race because I got I got sort of got spat out in the first attempt, but came back and I'm doing it again. And um it was never really going to be gone for long, I don't think. But yeah, so I'm I'm happy where I am. I'm happy what I'm doing. And um at not one point do I take it for granted, and I never will take it for granted because I'm incredibly lucky with what we do. And um I feel incredibly grateful for all the lovely comments I get and all the viewers we get across every channel and I just want everyone to grow as much as they can I want the channels to grow I want everyone to have such an amazing time with Formula One and motorsport because that's what it is it's a fan sport and we are fans and that's what um leads back perfectly to what you said earlier oh god bless him Bob, Bob Jenkins as well I'm just a fan that got lucky well I think that is the perfect place to end it for now uh josh you know thank you so much for coming on and telling your story and uh you know we'll see where we are a year or two down the road but uh you know i'd, I'd love to have you back on the show yeah as well because who knows uh you know where each of us is going to be in a year as we continue on our journeys but uh you know before i let you go here is there anything you want to plug i don't think i'm going to be able to get this up by uh this this coming weekend here but i know you've got uh lots of races that you're preparing for I, I always hate plugging. It always sounds so selfish, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it as well. But 
if if you're watching this or listening to this as well and you want to listen to more of me and Ben, the Quid Network is obviously the place to go. Ben's YouTube channel is absolutely amazing as well. Some great content on there. I always know that I always shove it on every now and then in the morning, especially. And Ben might freak out about me listening to this, but sometimes I watch Ben's videos and uh, I fall asleep as well because I always put them on and listen to them and as well. So Ben, you you are such a smooth voice that you enable me to safely go to sleep at night. I'm always enjoying your videos, so keep it up. Uh, and of course, I was about to say it as well, I was just like it, but my own YouTube channel as well with Joshua Birch, motorsport journalist. It's where I do all the commentaries. And I, I'd love if you've enjoyed mine and Ben's chat here as well. Uh, come along and see what we do and see what we always talk about and see what I talk about in, in Formula One. And uh, if you like what it is, get in touch. Let us know where you've come from and I'll have a conversation with you live on air. It's, it's always fun. And uh, at not one point will I ever knock you down. It's, uh, it's welcome to all. Uh, as well that's that's what i like with motorsport as well no matter who you are where you are in the world everyone is equal and everyone has a fantastic time watching some good racing it's always the best bit josh thank you for your time and uh, we'll talk to you soon thank you ben have a good day